Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. While kidney stones and bladder issues can affect men and women, enlarged prostates, prostate cancer, and low testosterone are some of the reasons to see a urologist. Men, your health, your body, urology, tonight, on call with Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust. Hello and welcome to On Call with Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, tonight's Prairie Doc host. Thank you for joining us during our 21st season, providing health information based on science, built on trust. Continuing that tradition is our goal for tonight's discussion. Tonight's topic is men's health and urology. Joining us tonight on the campus of South Dakota State University is Dr. Dennis Joseph Toom from Urology Specialist Sioux Falls and through Zoom, Dr. Nicholas Hobson from Monument Health Rapid City Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Hobson, Dr. Toom. Uh, Joe, if you don't mind, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a born and raised South Dakotan. I, I grew up in Sioux Falls, went to high school there, went to the University of Sioux Falls for my undergrad degree in chemistry. Uh, at that point, I kind of wanted to get out a little bit, see a little bit of the rest of the country, so I did my medical school at Northwestern in Chicago, and I did my, uh, after that, did my residency in urology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Uh, had a great experience at both, but at the end, it was time to get back home and get, you know, get back to the Northern Plains, and it's a decision I've been very happy I made. I currently practice at Urology Specialist in Sioux Falls, and. Um, it's a wonderful practice and I thoroughly enjoy serving the patients of the Northern Plains. And your wife is also a urologist. She is, yes. And we, she's been on the show a couple times. She has been, so I, she's been on twice and so I had to make my debut to, you know, at least earn my spot at the dinner table, so to speak. So. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah. And Dr. Hobson, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'm new to South Dakota. I grew up in Washington State, just north of Seattle. I went to Brigham Young University and earned a degree in microbiology. I uh, went to medical school in, in Kirksville, Missouri, at Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I, I joined the Army. I, I did the health profession scholarship that the military offers, and they funded my schooling and put me through training. I did my general surgery intern year at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, and then the rest of my urology training with the UT San Antonio. And um, after I was finished, I moved my family out to uh, Savannah, Georgia. I served two years at Fort Stewart near Savannah, Georgia, and then two years at Fort Gordon at the uh, hospital and base there, Dwight D. Eisenhower Army Medical Center. And then it was time to get out of the military. We wanted to find a place that um, would be a great place to raise a family. It was uh, kind of near family. We have a lot of family in, in the Mountain West and um, Rapid City came up and it was a great opportunity and it 
had the Black Hills and so much to offer, and we uh, fell in love with it, and we moved out here three months ago and, and have been very happy. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you for your service, and, and glad you're finding a home finally in South Dakota. So. Thank you. Well, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions now about men's health and urology. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225 or send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. However, sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. And we already have some questions. So uh, we have one here uh, from Facebook. This, uh, this person was uh, a 61-year-old male, and uh, they have a bulbar urethral stricture. And before I move on, what's a stricture? A stricture is a narrowing of some sort that can happen throughout the urinary tract. Usually it's some scar tissue uh, that is formed for a variety of reasons. And ultimately, yes, it can cause symptomatic issues. Um, and ultimately, it, in its worst case scenario, leading to complete obstruction of that area. Yeah, so you can't pee then. Can't pee, exactly. Yeah. And so, sometimes they're, they're having to go all the time. Right, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Go. And there can be, you know, the most common thing people notice is, hey, my stream's weak. And, you know, just if you narrow the tube, uh, you're going to have a weaker stream. And that's usually the first way a lot of these will present. Sure. Well, he says that at 1999, it was discovered during removal of a kidney stone. At that time, the urethra was dilated, made bigger, but then in 2014, a urologist performed a DVIU procedure on the stricture, but was told it would probably return. A few years later, it did return. So basically, they're in this dilemma now where they're wondering if they should have this procedure again, but it would be a temporary fix, or a urethroplasty, but that could result in complications such as impotence as well. Well, Dr. Hobson, could you walk us through that a little bit? And, and if, if you had a patient in, the, in, you know, in, in front of you with, that, that he's had this history of the stricture, already had a procedure for it in the past, what would you recommend or, or present for their options? Yeah, great question. Um, after a DVIU um, that has failed, there's a very high likelihood that it will recur. And what is that DVIU? Um, it's a, a generally a, a procedure used with a, a laser or um, another device to cut through the stricture and um, cause it to open up. And um, so it's a very common procedure to be done first time a, a short stricture has been identified. And it has a fairly high success rate if the stricture is not too big. But if it's too long of a stricture, then uh, it has a very high failure rate. But regardless, if it fails, it, the general recommendation is not to repeat it because of its high failure rate. Now, urethroplasties can be very successful. If there's concern, it's a very good idea to be seen by a urologist who has fellowship training or advanced training in urethroplasties and reconstruction of the urethra. Uh, it can be done safely, although there is a risk of impotence, um, but uh, if the stricture is worked up thoroughly, um, 
you can have a good idea of going into the procedure if that will be a high risk. Um, so going forward, my recommendation would be to go ahead with a urethroplasty and visit with a, a surgeon that performs those regularly as, as not all urologists uh, perform urethroplasties. And so is there someone like that in Rapid City, just curious? Um, I perform urethroplasties. One of my partners, uh, Dr. Robert Santa Cruz, also performs urethroplasties. Okay, and how about, in they, how about in Sioux Falls? Yeah, in our practice, uh, a, a couple of the doctors in our group will uh, do certain urethroplasties. And you know, just like any pathology, there can be varying degrees of complexity that can play into every case. And I think, you know, if, if it's a run-of-the-mill stricture that is has no complicating factors, you know, certainly uh, anybody who does them with any regularity can be very well qualified. You know, if there's a lot, of, if it's a very long stricture or there are other, you know, like I say, complicating factors, usually at that point then I would, I usually refer to, you know, subspecialists who do, that's all they do is uh, urethral reconstruction. But most strictures, you know, can be treated pretty safely by somebody who has just basic training in that uh, surgical techniques. So. Yeah. Now we talked about how a stricture could give a man the sensation that they have to go frequently. Mm -hmm. But the most common reason why a man might feel like they have to go frequently, what would be what? Well, in um, I guess obviously you initially rule out things like infection that could cause a man to, you know, or any person to have urinary frequency. Uh, but more, most commonly in my practice, which is mostly older gentlemen, uh, the most common thing we see is enlarged prostate, and that's. It's pretty, very common to see, but it, it doesn't have to be lived with just because it's common. Um, and there are a variety of things we can do to help improve those symptoms and also make sure that nothing more serious is going on that could affect their bladder health, their kidney health long term. So it's, it's a, something that initially comes in as a quality of life issue, but at certain times can present threat to their overall health. Such as if if they can't pee. Right, so, so some guys, the reason they're going frequently is they're not able to empty their bladder. And if they're not able to empty their bladder, that, that may mean they're, they're having high residuals in their bladder, meaning only a small fraction of what's in the bladder is being excreted, and over time that can cause damage to the bladder and cause it to weaken, and it can also cause pressure to be transmitted to their kidneys that can lead to kidney damage and even loss of all kidney function if in its most severe cases. Yeah, so it is something a person should get checked out. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Nick, so say a patient has been on medication to help with an enlarged prostate for several years, but now the medication isn't, doesn't seem to be enough for them. What would you recommend? So medications are great. They've um, helped a lot of men um, um, who and who in olden times would have needed surgery or would have ended up in the emergency room with the bladder that doesn't work anymore. But lots of times medications don't work. Um, and so we do have a wide variety of surgical options. And the majority of them are minimally invasive. Um, they can be done in, in an outpatient setting where a, a patient can go home the same day, sometimes with a catheter and some of the techniques that we have, a patient go, can go home the same day without a catheter. Um, and these are some newer techniques that have been developed in the last 10 to 15 years. So there's no reason a, a man needs to be suffering with poor urination and 
poor quality of life when we have um, a wide variety of surgical options. Now, some men have prostates that are just too big to treat minimally invasive. And so we do have more invasive techniques to, to relieve that obstruction. I, I feel like sometimes men, um, you know, would rather, of course, not have a surgery, but sometimes if they wait too long, now they can't pee at all and they need a catheter. And, and sometimes at that point, they might be old enough, they're too, surgery is too high risk. Yeah, I, I saw a patient in clinic today. Um, I've been following him for a little while. He came into the emergency room back in the summer um, and he couldn't pee. He had been going on for several days and he came in with a, a liter and a half of urine in his bladder, which is almost the size of a two liter bottle of soda. And um, the bladder is only designed to hold about a third of that um, on a regular basis. And um, since then, he has not been able to pee on his own uh, and he's been dependent on a catheter. Um, and now we're to the point to consider surgery because he just recently showed up in my clinic and we need to find out if his bladder even works anymore before we can proceed with uh, surgery because we could do surgery on him and he still would need a catheter if his bladder doesn't work. So it's very important to take care of this early on before it gets to a point where you have to be dependent on a, a catheter, which is not fun at all. So I think the moral of the story is if you're going to the bathroom numerous times a day, numerous times at night, probably better get checked out. Doesn't mean it's your prostate, no. but to get it, get it checked and out. And one thing I would add is the guys who kind of kick the can for a few years and then finally pull the trigger, you know, a common thing, and I'm sure you hear this as well, I wish I had just done this sooner. Yeah. That is the quality of life improvement as, you know, is significant and guys are, you know, happy to um, have it resolved. Here's a question uh, from Albert, Minnesota. What are the telltale signs for testicular cancer along with the typical treatments or surgery? Yeah, great question. So uh, testicular cancer usually is, in general, is a painful, hard, or painless, hard mass on the testicle, though sometimes they can be painful and it usually occurs in usually men in their 20s. Um, so that's the usual presenting symptom. Um, so, and that's one of the things I always, one of the reasons why I encourage men to do self-testicular exams. It's a pretty painless thing in the shower. You can kind of feel, and if something doesn't feel right, obviously get checked out. As far as the initial treatment, if um, you know you and you, you present to your doctor and there's noted to be a mass, and they'll probably get an ultrasound and. You know, if things look suspicious, they'll draw labs and usually proceed by removing the testicle and getting a pathologic diagnosis. If that confirms cancer, usually you would get a full staging uh, workup as well, including a CT scan to make sure there's no spread of the cancer to the common lymph nodes that it usually goes to and beyond that. And then at that point, once you've been completely worked up, uh, you know, there, if there's signs of spread, frequently, you know, we would get our uh, medical oncology colleagues involved or radiation oncology colleagues. But, you know, the, the beautiful thing of testicular cancer is that it's a highly curable disease. And so early detection usually means early cure, and the earlier detection, usually the less intensive the treatment has to be. So, especially if you're a younger man, uh, that's your, pro although it can happen throughout, I've seen it in, you know, men in their 60s, but 
usually it's a young man's disease that can usually be easily treated and just paying attention to it can really help uh, with that. Yeah, and the, what I'd echo though is that it, it needs to get checked out. Absolutely. Um, it, I've, I've seen plenty of young men that um, were embarrassed to tell their parents Yeah. and were embarrassed to tell anyone and, and, and so that's where that typical sports physical and, and that's where I've caught some of these. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we're getting away from doing the testicular exam with some of these yeah. sports physicals and other male physicals. And so, especially for young men, I encourage you to tell someone mm -hmm. if you notice something. And you know, we see a lot of consults, you know, every month for guys who feel something. Most of the time it's nothing. Yes, but, absolutely. You know, so don't, and don't be afraid to tell, you know, a doctor about it, or especially a urologist. It takes a lot to make us blush, you know, we're not, you know, it's it's something we see every day and, you know, it's an important part of your health that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Well, speaking of cancer, prostate cancer screenings are usually an uncomfortable topic for most men to discuss with their doctors, but it could mean life or death in some cases. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke with a prostate cancer survivor on the importance of getting a screening. Paul Fixen is a retired soil fertility data scientist and his passion was always around charts and numbers. When Fixon was in his 50s, he took the PSA blood test for prostate screenings. My career has been in, in, in science and data has been a big part of that. And so I really liked the PSA, PSA test, especially starting it early because that gave a bench line of what normal readings were. In his early 60s, he noticed a strange jump from a PSA level one to three. Age 64 is when it became concerning. By the time we got up to age 64, it jumped to 7.8. And it only got worse. And I said, well, let's wait a month and do it again and just make sure it's not a spurious kind of a inflection point. Did it a month later and it was 8.8. .8. It had jumped up another whole unit. Fixin was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Right side of the prostate was clear, no problem. Left side, not the case. 20% uh, of the samples of the cores were cancerous. Fixin soon got treated, and the early detection was incredibly important to him. And the reason it was important is that this was, you know, it was fairly aggressive cancer, uh, but we were early very early in, in, in it, and, and what that did was it gave me multiple options. Fixin also implores others to get screened, as the sooner prostate cancer can be found, the more options become available for handling the cancer. I had a, a fairly minor interruption in, you know, in my daily routine, and a big part of that was because we got it early. I had treatment options, I could pick the one that best suited me, and life now is good. Thanks, Paul, for, for sharing your story. So, um, prostate cancer screening, there's a lot of, um, it, there's been some back and forth on, on that. 
Um, what are some of the current recommendations with prostate cancer screening? Right. Well, you know, yes, there has been a little controversy with the U.S. Uh, Preventative Task Force and uh, how that goes against, you know, so some of the things that we've classically thought about screening and, you know, prostate cancer screening is always a balance of trying to screen people who you can actually help and maybe not worrying about people where prostate cancer is a lower risk. And you know, I think one of the backbones of the AUA recommendations is something called shared decision making. And not necessarily a blanket recommendation, but you know, having a discussion with your doctor about what are the risks, benefits, what else do you have going on in your health? You know, if you're uh, somebody who has a lot of very significant other health issues and you're in your late 70s, and you know, PSA may not make the most sense for you, but you know, it's a discussion that you should have with your doctor about what are my risks, what are my benefits of this, getting this test, if we, when we have this information, how would we proceed, and what makes the most sense for each individual patient. Uh, with that being said, I, I do like a PSA test and a rectal exam. I think, you know, as long as you take it for what it is, it's not a perfect test, but just a one piece of information we can add in with your family history, um, you know, and there's other things we can get prostate size and do PSA densities. We can do prostate MRIs and get a full picture before we're rushing anybody into anything. So I, I, I think it's a nuanced discussion that, um, you know, because it is true, the data is not concrete about who we're helping, who we're not helping, but it's something your doctor should really discuss with you and thorough and if your primary care doctor or your urologist. Yeah, you know, and, and here's a question about it. What are the doc's thoughts, recommendations on PSA screen and digital rectal exams? And, and, and on, on the one hand, you've got screening, where mm -hmm. someone's not having any symptoms, just doing an, an annual PSA. And, and, and that's a discussion to have with your doctor, whether you want to pursue that or mm -hmm. not. Um, the digital rectal exam is, is even recommended against now, typically in a screening situation. Right. But once someone has symptoms or their PSA is getting elevated, and yes, people caught things with the finger test, mm -hmm. but it kept some people from going to the doctor in the first place. Exactly. So that's where that was, and then it, and it's not an easy or great test either. Exactly. So, talk to your doctor. And, exactly. And a person can say, yeah, I want the full screen and I want them exactly. both done, or they can say, I don't want either. You know, and, and it's one of those things where if your PSA is up and you already know you're going to need a buy, you know, I guess I'm pretty judicious with the, the finger exam because, yeah, it's an invasive test. And in any test that we do, we need to be cognizant of what's the benefit of the information I'm going to get because there is data to say our fingers aren't very smart. Sometimes, you know, we're exposing people sometimes to excess biopsies. but. It's a discussion you need to have with your doctor about what are just any test. What are the risks, benefits of this test, and does that make sense in your situation? Yeah, Nick, when uh, someone's been referred to you for an elevated PSA, um, what do you typically recommend? Do you recommend a biopsy then, or maybe you might check it again, or what do you usually do? So it's important to look at their their trend. Like the gentleman that was um, featured in the video just before. This, uh, to start this segment, um, he had had a, a steady rise in his PSA, and that is a very helpful indication that something's going on and could be prostate cancer. Quite often we get patients in our offices, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Toom has this experience too, where they've only had one PSA and it's elevated, but we don't know, it's just a snapshot in time there's many things that can cause the PSA to be elevated, such as enlarged prostate. 
um, infections, retention of urine, um, even sexual activity can cause it to be transiently elevated. So if they just have one snapshot in time of a PSA, then um, generally uh, most urologists will repeat the PSA um, three weeks, a month, or a couple months later just to confirm that. I had a patient in that situation today. His PSA was close to 10, and um, or actually over 10, and he came back today and it was down to three. So it, it changed our, our plan to go forward with the prostate biopsy, which is the next step generally um, if you're going to um, proceed. If um, the PSAs continue to be elevated, then, then you proceed with a prostate biopsy, which is a simple clinic procedure. And now sometimes with the biopsy, it might show a low-grade cancer that maybe we can just watch because surgeries and such can cause complications, cause impotence, cause erectile dysfunction, cause more serious complications. Um, but perhaps it might sh the biopsy might show a really invasive or aggressive cancer. And so um, if that's the case or if, that, or if they want to proceed with doing something for the prostate cancer, what are some of their options? Well, the current, um, you know, most standard procedures for treatment of prostate cancer are surgery, where you remove the prostate, and radiation treatment. There's different kinds of radiation treatment, and so I always counsel my patients that it's a good idea to visit with a radiation oncologist, who is the doctor who administers the radiation treatment. Um, there's also newer techniques, such as cryotherapy, and those are typically done at um, centers such as Mayo Clinic or in, in Denver, um, I would assume, um, where um, there's a higher volume of prostate cancer um, patients um, seeking treatment. Well, you know, it's, it's not a one-size-fit-all no. situation. Um, you know, and sometimes you can do everything right and still something shows up. There was a question here uh, from someone that they were uh, only in their 40s and had a full prostate removal but didn't have chemo at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but then two years later, the PSA went up again and two plus. And so then they were wondering, does that mean, does, do they have cancer again and what should be their treatment? Right, so after prostate, you know, for a patient who chooses prostate removal for their prostate cancer, it's important to be vigilant with your follow-up because the PSA returning can indicate a recurrence of cancer, what we call biochemical recurrence. In that setting, for a patient who's had surgery up front, they still kind of have radiation in their back pocket as a potential treatment, what we call salvage radiotherapy. And in that, that's a time where we would involve our radiation oncology colleagues to evaluate them and, and see if they are a candidate, which they usually are for salvage radiotherapy, which still gives us a cure as a possibility. So it's important for, once again, for those men who do get their prostate removed, the game's not over, we still need to be vigilant. You know, one of the treatments for prostate removal are robotic now, mm -hmm. but even uh, sometimes you can use a robot for other surgeries. This, this patient, 70-year-old male, struggled with, uh, with a TERP in the past for an enlarged prostate mm -hmm. and deals with pain during erection and ejaculation. What are the benefits of robotic surgery? And are there any other less invasive remedies? So, for, uh, 
options other than a TERP for BPH involving robotics, if I'm understanding yeah. the question right. So yes, for certain select patients, we will use more invasive techniques, and Dr. Hobson kind of alluded to this earlier, something called a robotic simple prostatectomy. And that's generally reserved for gentlemen who have very large glands that are you know, on the top end of the bell curve, so to speak. Um, and ultimately, it, it just allows us to remove more tissue in a more efficient manner and usually allows us to get a better outcome. You know, once again, it's, but it's not a one-size-fits-all deal. And every potential procedure always has potential for risk. Like I tell my patients, you can't drive your car around the block with a little risk. And it, so it's important to be, you know, I always make sure, is this something that bothers you? Because any procedure a doctor can do will always have potential for side effects. And thankfully, the advent of the robotic procedures helped even make it less invasive. Oh yeah, it, exactly. Before. Much less blood loss and um, quicker recovery. And but it's like I tell my patients, it's still surgery, and there's, you know, there's still, it's it's still a traumatic experience for your body to go through, and you, we don't take it lightly, you know, ever. And I should really back up because we talked about a TERP, but we didn't really explain what that is. What is what is TERP? Mean? So TERP, and a lot of guys would know it as a roto-rooter job, is what you commonly hear people say. Is basically that's a transurethral procedure where we introduce a scope into the urethra, and we are able to get access to the prostate and using uh, a variety of energy sources. But usually for a TERP, it's a cautery, bipolar, or monopolar cautery to basically remove the obstructing tissue and restore a open channel to allow the urine to flow without resistance and allow the bladder to drain maximally and ultimately restore quality of life and symptom, allow for symptom resolution usually with that procedure. Usually it's an overnight in the procedure. Some people will do them same day, usually a catheter for anywhere from one day to a week. Um, and it's a very common procedure and is still probably considered the gold standard for treating a wide variety of prostate um, enlargement. Going back to prostate cancer, um, this person asked, what is the critical age for male prostate cancer? So Nick, um, wh what ages would we want to treat someone? What are the most common ages for prostate cancer? Um, what would you say? So the American Urologic Association recommends screening for all men ages 55 through 69, especially uh, at least after they've had that discussion with their physician if they want to have screening. But that's the age group that's going to find the most benefit from screening. Um, when you get into your 70s, then you want to look at, you know, your life expectancy or your other health issues and how much value are you going to get from PSA screening. Um, it's It comes into a little bit more question. Um, for people who are younger than 55, um, that's generally people who are higher risk, such as African-American males or people who have a strong family history, like a father or brothers who've had prostate cancer. And then it's gonna be more important to start screening maybe when you're 50 or, you know, if you have a father who had prostate cancer at 45 or 50, maybe um, you might consider screening that early, but generally we don't start screening people in their 40s. Well, um, moving along from the prostate and, and cancer, there's many other things we should mm -hmm. talk about tonight. And, and uh, one thing that's more common with men is gout. So gout is a common form of inflammatory arthritis that is very painful and affects many aspects of daily living, 
including work and leisure activities. Reporter Sam Schauer talks with jo Dr. Jonathan Moschel about what to look for, risk factors, and treatment. Dr. Jonathan Moschel is a doctor of osteopathic medicine with Avera in Brookings, and he says gout is a severe reaction to uric crystals that deposit in joints and soft tissues. So we all know there's sodium in our body. There's also uric acid in our body. Some amount is normal, and that comes from breakdown of body products or breakdown of things that we eat. But if due to our genetics or a kidney disease, we cannot get rid of as much uric acid as we need to, that can build up and then cause the crystallization or the formation of those crystals in your joints. What makes this disease easy to identify are the symptoms. And Dr. Moschel says you will know when you have gout. You'll see a sudden onset of redness and pain in your joint. Most often the, um, the middle joints of the first big toe or on the side of your foot um, but also ankles um, and knees at times. Dr. Moschel says anybody can develop gout, but some are more at risk than others. Having gout in your family or a genetic predisposition can put you at risk. Uh, men are more at risk, and people with kidney disease are also more at risk. Gout is very similar to arthritis with joint pain, but the difference comes back to the crystals. So it's similar in that there's pain and there's inflammation, but the inflammation is triggered by the crystal deposit rather than inflammation that comes from chronic damage to the joint over time. Another unique feature about gout is rather than mild, constant pain with arthritis, gout comes in flares. Arthritis might be a mild to moderate level of pain that you feel most days out of the month. Gout is severe pain that you have for a shorter span, maybe one to two weeks, and only have that a few times a year um, or less. Dr. Moschel says there are some things people with gout can do to help decrease flares. That could be being active or exercising, limiting alcohol, avoiding food, foods that cause elevated uric acid or high uh, purine-rich foods. Um, and then generally eating a balanced or healthy diet. He also wants to mention it is nobody's fault when gout appears, as people with high uric acid don't get gout flares, and yet others with normal levels do. Gout happens when it happens, and the best treatment to mitigate gout flares or to decrease their occurrence or recurrence is to use medication to keep uric acid in a lower um, or normal level. Yeah, unfortunately, gout can be a very painful thing, and uh, gout itself doesn't have a lot to do with urology. It has to do with, it can affect men more commonly, but uric acid, the buildup of uric acid causes that gout, and sometimes people have uric acid kidney stones. They can, yes. Tell me about kidney stones. Well, <coughs> kidney stones are uh, made in the kidney, obviously, but they can cause problems throughout the urinary tract, primarily in the ureter, um, the tube that drains the kidney. And yes, uric acid is one type. The more common types we see are uh, calcium oxalate, and they are 
very prevalent in, the, in these areas and throughout the nation, but they can provide extreme pain and if left untreated over time can cause deterioration of renal function. So it's obviously one of those things that's important to see a doctor and uh, it also is one of those things that because of the way the, the stones make the patients feel, this is not a situation where people avoid the doctor. They're usually in miserable pain if it's obstructing and they are in the ER very quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Hobson, when someone comes in with a kidney stone, uh, in that moment or when you, to help them right away, you guys often uh, place a stent. Can you explain how that helps? Yeah, so um, kidney stones are quite often described as the most painful um, thing that a person has gone through. And I've heard many women say that it's more painful than childbirth. So it's nothing to laugh at. <laughs> Um, a stent is a very important tool that we have, um, although many people who have had them hate stents. Um, they um, are very important because um, it's a, a stent is a little tube that will be inserted um, through the urethra and the bladder and all the way up into the kidney and it will rest inside the kidney down the ureter into the bladder and it will allow the kidney to drain around that obstructing kidney stone. And so it, the, its main purpose is to drain the kidney and protect the kidney from infection and obstruction, which can cause it to lose its function. Um, the stent um, generally is supposed to be temporary, but quite often we have patients who have a stent placed and kind of forget about it, forget to follow up. And so it's, if you've ever had a stent placed, it's very important that you follow up because um, they because they are meant to be temporary, they can um, become obstructed themselves themselves over time and also completely block off the kidney and cause it to, to, to die away, basically. Um, but uh, we, we use the stents um, to um, help obstructing stones and help patients with obstructing stones in the acute phase in the hospital. And then we also use them after a kidney stone surgery to um, help maintain the, the drainage of the kidney until all the swelling resolves. And so we always re remove those after the stone has been taken care of. Very good. So Joe, um, now that you've got this stent in there, they're more comfortable because it's drained in, they're more comfortable. Now you gotta do something about the stone. Right. What are some options for that? Well, there's a variety of ways that we can treat stones now, and a lot of it just depends on where it is in the urinary tract and how big it is. Um, the most common modality we use is to pass a scope up into the ureter or, and up into the kidney if necessary and use a laser to break it up into small pieces, you know, remove the fragments and ultimately allow uh, for you know, to the normal anatomy to drain on its own again and no longer need the stent. There are situations where we can use something like sh sh called extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy or ESWL. This is a less invasive technique and sometimes um, in certain settings though it can be an excellent mod energy modality to break up stones and allow for resolution of uh, the patient's symptoms and there are other situations where we have a very large stone in the kidney and we um, need to get larger instruments in to fully break up the stone and remove all fragments and then we would do something called a percutaneous nephrolithotomy or a PCNL and that involves uh, usually our interventional radiology colleagues will place a little hole into the back basically and allows us to get 
larger instruments in and uh, you know effectively treat the stone. Um, it really is amazing what they can do now. Oh, yeah. I mean, they used to have to go in and cut it out. Right. You know, and they're you know in the '60s and '70s, if you had a big stone, frequently it meant a big incision. Um, and go in and have to physically cut it out. And now, due to advances in technology, we're able to do more and more with less and less. Yeah. Well, uh, Nick, uh, uh, this patient asks, is there a specific diet recommended to prevent kidney stones or foods that could help if currently struggling with kidney stones? Yes, sir. We um, commonly go over uh, diet recommendations and clinic for people who come in with kidney stones. There's a lot of great resources online, um, websites dedicated to kidney stones. Um, the number one thing to, you can do to prevent kidney stones is drink enough water. A lot of people don't like water, so there's um, options um, that you can find, uh, flavored water that are fairly healthy. Um, another thing is, um, so the recommendation for water is generally two to three liters of, of water a day. Um, citric acid is also very key to preventing kidney stones. A lot of kidney stone formers um, don't have enough kid, uh, citric acid in their urine. And so that can be found in foods like lemons and limes and um, certain fruits and vegetables. There's also supplements that I quite often recommend to my patients to take, um, add to their water, especially if they don't like the flavor of water, such as Crystal Light or, or those packets, um, as long as they're taken in moderation. Um, other things are to uh, avoid a high sodium diet, um, as well as a high animal protein diet. Um, like Dr. Toom mentioned, um, calcium oxalate are the most common types of stones. Um, so we generally recommend to um, avoid oxalate in your diet or cut back, which um, can be found in many different types of foods, but common ones are peanuts, spinach, and, and tea. Um, the actual recommendation is regarding calcium is not to cut back on calcium, but to maintain a, a normal level of calcium in your diet. You know, and, someone, I, and I read one time that calcium, like if you're taking calcium, pills, like in a multivitamin or calcium plus D, that calcium is, is more likely to build up and cause stones and clog your arteries than the calcium in your diet. So it's really better to get calcium and, and, and nutrients in your, in your diet with a variety of fruits and vegetables and stuff. I don't know if you know much about that, but I found that interesting when I read that. Yeah, definitely for patients who have uh, calcium-based stones, um, uh, generally want to avoid um, extra supplementation of calcium in their diet with um, non-food calcium. Well, we've got several questions left. Um, we'll just try to get through them here. The, one person did ask what their chances of developing kidney stones are, and I'm, I, I don't know if, I, if you guys have a number offhand, but they're pretty common. But if you have to draw back, good old test question. I'm not there, sure I I'm can sure. tell you exactly what yeah. it is. But, well, I mean, I believe about 30% of American adults will experience a kidney stone at some point in their life. I think that so sounds about right. Yeah. So it's, it's and another, 
another person asked if, if high blood sugar, or high blood pressure can affect the kidneys, and that's absolutely true. That's oh, why yes. we want to keep the, yes. the blood pressure under control and watch for diabetes mm -hmm. and, and, and everything. And Those diabetes are, can put you at increased risk for stone formation as well. So, you know, a lot of the urologic conditions frequently are a check engine light for what else is going on in the person's health. Um, you know, it's, and you, somebody will come to the urologist for something that really jumps out at them, but it can usually be a sign or attributable to something more foundational to their health that is affecting other systems as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, this person uh, had gotten a Lupron shot and they're wondering um, how long after taking the last Lupron shot will their testosterone return to normal? First, why would they have a Lupron shot and, and how long does that last? So Lupron shots usually are given in the setting of a gentleman who has um, well, prostate cancer by cutting off the testosterone to the cancer cells. We're usually able to basically put the cancer to sleep. Uh, it can kind of be used as somewhat of our near our last resort for patients who have failed all therapy or presented late. Uh, it can also be used as an adjunct to um, improve the efficacy of treatment when people are getting radiation. Um, the shots come in varying durations, uh, anywhere from one month to six months usually. And usually I feel like guys are, I, we don't routinely check when the testosterone comes back, but I feel like usually six months after, well, I should say six months after it expired, their treatment should wear off, they're feeling back to their normal selves. Sometimes sooner, sometimes later, I've seen variations of when guys pop back, but usually guys are able to get back to a good testosterone level or whatever they were prior to the treatment. Say, Nick, uh, that brings us into testosterone and low testosterone, and that's something that more men are getting treated for, now it's not without risk, but what are some of your thoughts on testosterone replacement? Yeah, so it, yeah, like you said, it's, it's becoming more and more common, it seems. Um, some of the symptoms of low testosterone generally are um, fatigue, low energy, um, erectile dysfunction, or low sexual desire. Um, also, weight gain and um, um, low testosterone can also lead to lower bone density. Um, so generally, men are coming in with those types of complaints when they're um, requesting evaluation or treatment for that. Um, there is some kind of controversy on what level of testosterone um, we should start treating at. Um, generally, the cutoff is somewhere around 300, sometimes 250. Generally, men's testosterone should be ranged from um, about 300, 350 up to six to 700. It just depends on your, your age um, and stage in life quite often, as well as your physical activity. Um, physical activity can affect um, your, your testosterone level. So quite often when men have kind of borderline low testosterone levels, we try to come up with um, you know, ways to improve their physical activity and, um, and weight loss and things like that. Um, but quite often we do start um, testosterone supplementation and there's uh, for low, uh, symptomatic low testosterone levels. And there's multiple options for that. Um, there's injections that can be done usually, you know, a, a couple times a month. Um, and lots of patients learn to do those injections on their own. Um, there's creams that can be put on the body. Um, generally, we don't do oral 
testosterone replacement, um, but there are um, uh, pellets that can be implanted under the skin as well. Um, then they generally have a longer efficacy for up to six months at a time. Um, we do have to monitor testosterone levels and as well as other lab levels um, that can be affected um, because there are, with anything, side effects. Um, when we take in exogenous testosterone, it, it tends to shut down your own body's um, production of testosterone. And so generally, if a person isn't responding to a testosterone treatment and their testosterone levels have risen to normal levels, but their symptoms aren't improving, the general recommendation is to um, stop the treatment because um, uh, we really just are yeah. trying to and, help the symptoms, not so and, much and just sorry the to, level. Sorry to interrupt you, Nick, but in, in summary, you know, it does have cardiovascular risk, heart disease risk, prostate cancer risk, and mm -hmm. large prostate risk. But uh, that's all we've got. So well, well. thank you both for joining me. The winner of our prize tonight is David from Sioux Falls. Thank you, David, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be right back after this. Based on science built on trust, grab a copy of your local newspaper to read the Prairie Doc Perspective, a weekly health and medical column. Over 130 newspapers in the region carry the article. Ask your local paper if they print Prairie Doc today. Head to prairiedoc.org to access all archive columns. A hug when I come home after a long day, a smile that melts my heart, a song and a dance that are spontaneous and carefree. Those are some of the blessings that come to mind when I think about my daughter. Daughters can be a blessing in so many ways, as can sons, of course. However, when it comes to taking care of families, women often play a vital role. Whether it is a young mom with her baby, a concerned wife encouraging her husband to go to the doctor, or a loving daughter preparing her elderly father another meal, women are important for men's health. Certainly. Men are important for the health and well-being of children, spouses, and parents as well. However, women naturally tend to be caregivers and stewards of a family's health. Studies have shown that having a daughter increases their father's life expectancy, while sons do not statistically contribute to paternal longevity. Interestingly, having sons or daughters both decrease the life expectancy of their mothers presumably due to the stress on the body. Thus, if one wants to promote men's health and awareness, one must reach the women. This November, you may see a few more mustaches than usual for the annual No Shave November, sometimes called Movember for the M from mustache, and intended to raise awareness of men's health issues, such as prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and suicide. Oftentimes, the key to detecting and treating cancer is to catch it early. A preventative physical exam with a primary care provider can allow time to identify a person's health risk factors and decide on a strategy for screening and detecting disease. This wellness visit should also promote healthy efforts at diet and exercise that may prevent some diseases altogether. And who is it that often encourages men to get their preventative physical and see their doctor? It's the mothers, wives, and daughters. 
For this Movember, I want to give a thank you to the women and anyone taking care of the men in their life. Thank you for encouraging them to get their health checked out and seeking help for mental illness. Thank you for being caregivers. Thank you for being a blessing and for saving lives. And also a big thank you to our guests, Dr. Toom and Dr. Hobson, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about men's health and urology. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org, look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information Based on Science, Built on Trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. It is time again to open the phones, texts, and emails. We take all of your medical questions as it is. Ask the Prairie Docs. Next time, on call with the Prairie Doc. The vitality of a rural community is closely tied to the health of its population. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Dean. I grew up on a farm west of Wessington Springs, South Dakota. After completing medical training nearly 50 years ago, my wife Kathy and I came back to Wessington Springs to provide health care and to raise our family. All my life, I've been an advocate for rural communities. Rural residents often encounter barriers that limit their ability to obtain the care they need. In order for rural residents to have the best health care outcomes, appropriate health care services must be available in a timely manner. The foundation of good health care is good health information. Prairie Doc programming provides rural communities with truthful health care information based on solid science. All Prairie Doc media is free and accessible through social media and South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I am honored to be a volunteer board member of the Prairie Doc organization. I know the value of providing objective, evidence-based healthcare education, free of charge to anyone, especially to people who have limited access to healthcare professionals. Please help us to continue the legacy of Dr. Rick Holm of providing information based on science and built on trust. I urge you to go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today, as Kathy and I have done. If you don't feel comfortable donating online, please send our staff an email and they will send you a pledge card through the mail. Thank you for believing in and supporting our mission. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. 
and with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pierre District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Poinsett Sailing Academy, Everdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.